Good evening and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, November 17, 2022. Before we begin, let me just mention that a week from tonight, which is November 24th, we will not be together. Um, we are planning to go to our children in New York for American Thanksgiving. So a week from tonight, we will not be together, but then we will proceed after that together. And also in the morning from November 24 through 28, we will not be together. But before that and after that, we will be together in the mornings as well. I'm so grateful to each one of you for joining tonight. It is such a great feeling to be able to come, to be able to study together, and I thank you very much for being here. In last week's Torah portion, Vayera, we had the dramatic narrative of the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, where God commands Avraham to take his son Yitzchak, Isaac, and to offer him as an offering to God. Only at the last moment, saying to Avraham, no, don't touch him, that's not what I want. Now that narrative was introduced with the following words, Elohim Nisa es Avraham, and God tested Avraham. Now as many commentators point out, and we discussed this recently, the purpose of the test is not for God to find out the answer. God knows the result. God knows what Avraham will do. The purpose was to allow Avraham to actualize what was within him as potential, but had never been called forth. And so for Avraham and for us to understand of what he was capable and of what we are capable. And for Avraham to understand the scope of what God asks of him and of us. Now, our sages, in fact, tell us that Avraham was given ten tests, and it was because he passed them all that Avraham was chosen by God to be the patriarch of Am Yisrael, the Jewish people, until today. We assume that these tests were of increasing difficulty, but there is no clear statement in our sages' literature what the ten tests were. The Akedah, the binding of Isaac, is the only place where, it ex where the Torah explicitly says this is a test. So Rashi, the famous commentator, says that the ten tests occur during the narratives of the Torah portion of Lech Lecha and then last week's portion of Vayera. The first one is God's command to Avraham, Lech Lecha Me'artzacha, leave your home and go to the place that I will show you. That's number one. And according to Rashi, number ten was the end of last week's Torah portion, the Akedas Yitzchak, the binding of Isaac. And that makes sense 
in that clearly the Akedah was the most difficult of all the tests to ask Avraham to sacrifice, to offer his own son as an offering. Couldn't imagine anything harder than that. And that was number 10. Rabbeinu Yonah, one of the classic medieval commentators, is the only one who says that the last test, the tenth test, was not the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, in last week's Torah portion. That was actually number nine. Number ten, the final test, is in our Torah portion, the Parsha of Chayisara, that we read this Shabbos, when Avraham bought a field from Ephron to use that field as a burial place for his wife Sarah when she passed away. Now that opinion of Rabbeinu Yonah is very, very difficult to understand because especially if we assume that the tests are in ascending order of difficulty, how could any test come after the Akedah? I mean, asking Avram to offer his son as an offering, what, what greater test could there possibly be? How could that only be number nine? And what was so difficult about buying a field? Yes, there was some haggling over it. Yes, Avraham ended up spending a little bit more money than he thought he was going to have to pay for this burial field. But how can we understand that the test of buying this field, that its difficulty exceeded what Avraham was called upon to do with the Akedah? How is it possible to understand that? So I want to share with you an insight from Rabbi Yisachar Frand, and it is so important. It is so applicable to our lives. You know, it happens not infrequently to all of us at some point. After the most difficult task that we face, whatever it is, we feel by all rights we have nothing more to prove. We've done it. We passed. We did more than our share. It was difficult and now we're drained and now we can rest. The worst is over. Now we can relax. But that's not how life goes. The test of Avraham buying the field from Ephron in order to have a place to bury his wife, Sarah, the test in that is that even after the Akedah, God, I've done everything you asked. I have offered my most precious son. What more could you possibly ask of me? And now, God, I've done 
everything you've asked, but the one thing you promised me that I would inherit the land of Israel and now I've got to go purchase it from some stranger, Ephron, but it belongs to me. You promised it to me. After all I've done for you, how could you require me to now exert the effort? It's not that it's so much money, but it's mine. Why should I have to buy it when you, God, promised it to me. And after all I have done for you, <coughs> it's demoralizing. It's exhausting. The test is that Avraham did not give up. after the greatest effort is extended, after we finally feel we have proven ourselves, the test is to recognize that challenges persist. That is the nature of life. And we have to keep up the effort. Even when we are tired, even when we think we deserve to rest, even when we think we have proven everything that there is to prove, the test is, there's another test. There's another challenge. And this is true in so many areas of life. Raising children. We extend, expend such energy and effort and time and tears raising our children. And after years and years, finally we think that we've done all that we need to do and they're on their path and we can now relax. And then another need arises and we are called back into action. And we don't give up. Every area of life it's true about COVID. It's still not over. There are people getting sick. Thank God. I got sick recently. It was minor. I got over it. But there are people that are still getting sick and seriously sick. There is talk about reintroducing masks. And uh, come on. After all we've been through, we closed the synagogues, we stayed at home, we had curfews, we got shots. All the things that we did, we did it already. And now you tell me it's not over? But there's still more to do. We still have to be careful. It's not over. Rabbi Meir Gruzman explains that God had promised to Avraham that he would give him this land. And he has to negotiate for it. The test was in Avraham's faith in God's promise, even when it was not coming true when it should have. And the truth is, even after Avraham purchased 
that field and buried Sarah, his ownership was questioned. And even at the moment of his death, Avraham did not live to see God's promise fulfilled. Avraham passed that test and bequeaths to us this strength and eventually it was successful for Avraham. Avraham's faith was eventually rewarded. The first piece of Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, to come into Jewish ownership is this piece of land, which is today part of Hebron, one of the holy cities. And it is part of our heritage today and for all time. And that heritage comes along with the strength Avraham displayed when he thought he had done all that was possible for God. The strength to not give up and to keep doing whatever was needed for as long as it was needed. Because the tests never end. That's life. <clears throat> we discussed before that Avraham and Sarah initiated a new way of serving God through chesed, through acts of kindness, through acts of empathy and caring for God's children. It was the essence of of their lives. And we've studied over the last couple of weeks numerous examples of the way in which they exemplified this. It was the core of their personality. And it was so pervasive in their lives that when Avraham, in our Torah portion, sends his servant Eliezer to find a wife for Yitzchak, Eliezer according to the text of the Torah, intuits on his own, apparently without being told, the exclusive criteria for choosing a mate, a wife for Yitzchak, a, a daughter-in-law for Avraham, that this young woman must be suffused with this characteristic of chesed, of acts of kindness. It was obvious. This had to be the criteria for anyone joining the family of Avraham. There could be no other criteria. And we see that played out as Eliezer eventually finds Rivka, a woman who exemplifies chesed, and she becomes the mate, the wife of Yitzchak. <clears throat> the lesson for us is that we can never under, we should never underestimate the impact we have on others with even the smallest gestures. 
Speaking personally, I feel this stronger the older I get. This week, I had my second surgery, cataract surgery. Thank God it went well. I was blessed with a great doctor, great nurses, great technicians, great secretary in the doctor's office making the appointments. Wonderful. The truth is, I really was not nervous at all. I had tremendous confidence. The first one had gone well. This one went very well. Thank God. But I'm there. I'm getting ready. The nurses are preparing me for the surgery. And as calm as I may be, I do understand that there's a man who's going to put a very sharp instrument into my eyeball. And the nurses who were preparing me, they were so kind. They were so helpful. And, I mean, it's nothing. It's just, it's a smile. It's a nice comment. It's helping to put something on or take it off. It's a small gesture. But, you know, sitting in that room just before the surgery, it meant a lot to me as a recipient of that kind of small act of kindness. It made a difference. It really helped me. It put me at ease. And it can be so easy. It can be so simple. A smile. Rivka offering water, not only to Eliezer, but to his animals also. But no matter how small, no matter how slight, you can change someone's life. So I heard this story from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, but I happened to know personally the man in this story. In 1966, an 11-year-old black boy moved with his parents and his family to an all-white neighborhood in Washington, D.C. <clears throat> he was sitting with his brothers and sisters on the front step of the house, and he was waiting to see how they would be greeted by their neighbors. They were not. People passing by turned to look at them, but no one smiled. All the fearful stories that this boy had heard about how whites treat blacks seemed to be coming true. And years later, when he wrote about that day, he wrote, I knew we were not welcome here. I knew we would not be liked here. I knew we would have no friends here. I knew we should not have moved here. And as this 11-year-old boy was thinking these thoughts, a white woman came across the street. And she approached the children 
with a broad smile, and she said, Welcome. She went into her house, and she came back a few minutes later with a tray that held glasses of lemonade and sandwiches. And she brought this to the children to make them feel at home. And that moment, this young man later wrote, that moment changed his life. It gave him a sense of belonging where none had existed before. It made him realize at a time when race relations in the United States were fraught and tense and dangerous. It made him realize that a black family could feel at home in a white neighborhood and that there could be relationships that were colorblind. That first spontaneous act of greeting became for him a definitive memory. It broke down a wall of separation and turned strangers into friends. That small gesture changed his life. This young man, whose name is Stephen Carter, eventually became a law professor at Yale University Law School. He and I were teaching at Yale at the same time, and we worked together on a number of projects. We spoke about my class, which was a class in Jewish law, about which he was extremely knowledgeable and interested. I did not know this story then, when I knew Stephen, but Stephen Carter is a remarkable person <clears throat> in many ways. He's also, by the way, a great writer. He has written novels as well as nonfiction, and I recommend his writing to you highly. And he wrote a book about that day what he learned that first day in that new neighborhood, and the title of that book is called Civility. And in that book, he writes, it was no coincidence that this woman who came over to them was a religious Jew. In the Jewish tradition, he writes, such civility is called chesed. That's Carter's translation of chesed, civility, the doing of acts of kindness, which is in turn derived from the understanding that human beings are made in the image of God, which is absolutely correct. We've discussed this recently. To this day, he wrote, I can close my eyes and feel on my tongue the smooth, slick sweetness of the cream cheese and jelly sandwiches that I gobbled on that summer afternoon when I discovered how a single act of genuine and unassuming civility can change a life forever. 
always remember and never forget a single act of chesed can change a life forever. Now, Carter translated chesed as civility. Sometimes we translate it as kindness. In 1535, Miles Coverdale published the first ever translation of the Bible, the Torah, into English. And when he came to the word chesed, he realized there was no English word that fully captured its meaning. And so it was then, in order to translate that word, that he coined the word loving kindness. That is chesed, loving kindness. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel used to say, when I was young, I admired someone who was clever. Now that I am old, I admire someone who is kind. The older I get, the more I agree with that. William Wordsworth was right when he wrote that the best portion of a good person's life is their little, nameless, unremembered acts of kindness and love. That describes Rivka, and that is why she was perfectly suited to be Yitzchak's wife and to be our matriarch. <clears throat> I've shared the first part of this with some of you before. It's an incredible story that I heard from the Rav, Rav Yosef Soloveitchik. He, in turn, heard this story from his father. And it concerns a famous righteous convert to Judaism in Vilna in the 1700s. Now, this Gerd Sedek, this righteous convert, was the son of a famous Polish count, Count Pataki. And this count, Count Pataki, was one of the leading aristocrats in Poland. He was a very important person. His son is known in Jewish history as Graf, or Count Pataki. But he's known commonly as the Graf. Somehow, this young man converted to Judaism. And the way it happened was when the Count sent his son, the Graf, to one of the famous universities in Italy. And there, apparently, he met some Jewish people and he abandoned Catholicism and he embraced Judaism and he became a religious Jew. Now, because conversion was prohibited 
in Italy, he went to Holland, where it was permitted. And the fact is, if he would have remained in Holland, he might have lived a long life. But the Graf was lonely in Holland, and he wanted to return to Vilna. Well, he couldn't return to Vilna because he would be recognized. His father was so famous. He was well known. If he was living as a Jew in Poland, he would have been killed immediately. Poland also did not allow conversion to Judaism, which is one of the reasons that conversion to Judaism was so rare in Europe in the 1700s. So, to avoid detection, he moved to a small village near Vilna, and he lived his life studying Torah, doing mitzvot, keeping to himself. Somehow, somehow, someone found out who he was and informed him to the police. They arrested him. They offered to save his life if he would renounce Judaism and again embrace Christianity, which he refused. And he was sentenced to death, to execution. And he was, in fact, executed on the second day of Shavuos in the year 1749 in the square in front of the famous cathedral in Vilna. Now, that part of the story is historical fact. It's well known. Here's the part of the story that the Rav, Rav Salavechik, heard from his father. The night before the execution, the Graf in prison was visited by the Vilna Gon, Rabbi Eliyahu of Vilna, the greatest rabbi of Vilna, the greatest Talmudic scholar in the world at that time, who was well, well aware of the Graf and what he had achieved and how he was suffering. And the Vilna Gon, the great Vilna Gon, came to visit the Graf in prison the night before his execution. And the Graf began to cry. The Vilna Gon said to him, Why are you crying? Are you afraid? Are you afraid of dying? Are you afraid of the torture that they're probably going to inflict on you tomorrow? And the Graf said, No. I'm not afraid of dying. I'm not afraid of torture. I'm only afraid of one thing. When my life in this world is over and I reach the world to come, I will be all alone. No one else in my family is Jewish. I did not marry. I don't have children. I don't have a Jewish family. I will be in the world to come, Olam Haba. I'll be all by myself. And the Graf started to cry. So the Vilna Gon wanted to correct the thinking of the Graf. 
in a way that only the Vilna Gaon, Rabbi Eliela Vilna, could do. The Vilna Gaon quoted the verse in the Torah from the prophet Isaiah, Yeshayahu Hanavi. It is a verse, a Pusik, that we actually recite on the High Holidays. Ko mar Hashem melech Yisrael Hashem tzvakos. Thus does God say, God, the King of Israel, the Redeemer, the God of hosts, this is what God says, Ani Rishon, I am the first, Va'ani Acharon, and I am the last, Umi Baladai ein Elokim, and besides me there is no other God. What does that mean? So our rabbis in the Midrash say, I am the first because I do not have a father. God does not have a father. I am the last because I do not have a brother. Beside me there is no God because I do not have a son. So the Vilna Gon asked the following question. Is that really the correct meaning of this verse? It would seem based on this that that is a simple refutation against Christianity. Is that all that this verse is telling us, that God does not actually have a son? So the Vilna Gon said to the Graf, there's actually a mistake in the text of this passage of the rabbis. And the correct reading should be as follows. I am the first to the one who has no father, and I am the last to the one who has no son. In other words, God is saying through his prophet Yeshayahu, I am a father to everyone who has no father, and to everyone who is lonely, I am a father, I am a son to everyone who dies childless. This is the promise that God makes. And when the Graf heard this, he said to the Gaon, Rabbi Elio of Vilna, Nichamtani, you have comforted me. And the Graf stopped crying, and the Vilna Gaon went home. Vayihi acharei mos Avraham. In our Torah portion, Chayesara, this Shabbos, we read, and it was after Avraham died at the age of 175. God blessed Yitzchak, his son. One of the classic commentators to the Torah is known to us as the Alshech. The Alshech Ask the following question. And it was after Avraham died and God blessed Yitzchak. Well, we know who Yitzchak is. Yitzchak is the son of Avraham. Who is Avraham's, who is Yitzchak's father? Avraham. We know that. Why does the Torah say? And it was after Avram died. God bless Yitzchak. Why does it say 
Why does the Torah have to tell us at this moment that Yitzchak is Avraham's son? We know that already. The Alshik says the reason that God came to bless Yitzchak, Rashi says this actually, he came to comfort him. Nichum Avelim. He was making a shiva call. Avraham had died. Yitzchak's father had died. God came to bless him, to comfort him. Why did he need comfort at that moment? Well, when Sarah, Yitzchak's mother, had died, that was a tremendous loss. His mother died. But he still had his father, Avraham. When Avraham died, Yitzchak was an orphan. He had no one. That is the moment when Yitzchak really felt alone in the world. And that's when God appeared to Yitzchak. Vayivarach Elokim es Yitzchak b'no. God blessed Yitzchak his son, not Avraham's son. We know that Yitzchak was Avraham's son. The blessing that God gave to Yitzchak at the moment when he felt most alone in his life is to say to Yitzchak, but no, God says, you are my son. There is no such thing as an orphan who is alone. Because I and the father to one who his father died. And I am the son to the one who dies childless. Whenever we think that we are alone, through loss, through grief, through struggle, through pain, any time that we feel that we are alone, we are not. God says to every one of us, I am the parent to everyone who is lonely, and I am the child to everyone who is childless. That was God's comfort for Yitzchak. And that is God's promise to every one of us forever. My friends, I want to wish you a beautiful evening and a fantastic Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing you soon in person.